Hello everybody, my name is Alex Marks and this is Young History. This episode is the Ukraine. With everything that's going on these days, I think it's the duty of all historians, students of history, people who put out productions on history, things of all different sorts. I believe it's our duty right now to put out information on the history of this country that's on the global stage right now, that's facing a war with one of the greatest superpowers on earth. I will try my best to keep my opinions out of it for most of the episode. At the end, I'm going to say my piece, try and do my usual transfer of mindset from the situation to where we are now. But throughout the episode, I'm going to try my best to just say the history as it's been presented, what we know for a fact that happened, talk about any debating points, just put it all out there. And then at the end, I'll say my piece. And we're going to do that. So I don't want to waste any more time. This is a very important subject, especially for right now. So I'm just going to get right into it and say one more time, my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History. And this is Ukraine. The history of this country owes a lot of its events to three major regions. That would be the Black Sea, the Napa River, and the fact that it's right into the passage of the Eurasian steppes. Now, a lot of debate has gone into when things actually started, but some of the earliest archaeological data that is that can be presented from these people and from the history of Ukraine is that as far back as 50,000 years ago, there was early settlers, just early Proto-Indo-Europeans settling around the area, stone workers, stone age human beings. And that goes on for a very long time. We see about 40,000 years of time go by before we see any trace of a distinct culture that we can put a name to. And that was around 4,500 BC. And that's the Tripilian culture. And this was a culture very famous for their pottery. They settled mostly along the Napier River. And they were one of the earlier people to use the shifting agriculture where they moved their settlements with livestock around the area. And as we're going to see as we go throughout this whole story, is nomad culture shapes early Ukraine and shapes into the Ukrainian Cossacks and many people of the sort. So... On the Proto-Caspian Eurasian steppes, nomad culture was founded because it's pretty much the only way to su- way to survive in steppes. Now, when I say steppes, I don't mean like stair steps. It's a term for geography, which is pretty much wide open areas that are more scarce in resources. It's like a mix between like deserts and grasslands and far-ranging mountains. So resources themselves aren't super abundant. It's far hard to find a specific area where there's food, lumber you know, coal mines, stone, stuff like that. It's very just open. So the best way to live is to follow livestock patterns, follow grazing patterns, and hunt around that, only settle in certain areas for a short time, and move with as many groups of, like in a group with as many trusted people as possible. So that nomad culture is very necessary and present in the early Eurasian steppes, which are, is where Ukraine eventually becomes. A very huge thing that came from 
this time period and the nomadic culture around the area is the fact that a lot of historians believe that this is where the horse was originally domesticated by that early nomadic culture in the Proto-Caspian steppes because traveling without it wouldn't have been easy at all. Walking on foot, of course, is just slower than riding horseback. And the wide amount of travel that would have to happen between you know, Eastern or Western Asia and Eastern Europe in this area above the Black Sea, it's very much so possible that this is why horses were domesticated and are still used to this day by people and were used as the main form of travel for centuries and millennia. Now, there were a lot of people that formed into different groups on the Eurasian steppes, and they formed when there was a lot of them, they kind of went from it being just a bunch of separate groups to what is called like a horde. You know, we'll see you later with the Mongol horde. Just big groups of people have similar beliefs, ideals, and ways of living that will ride together and be nomadic throughout the land as one thing so that there is more security, there's more air, it's easier to view the area, it's easier to protect themselves within because, you know, the more people, the more eyes there are on every situation. But of course, that comes with, you know, sharing profits and different greed and betrayal could come up. But overall, there was a lot of loyalty to each other. And this is why a lot of different quote-unquote hordes are formed. Now, in the area, a lot of different people passed through and had their time controlling most of the lands. The earliest one outside of that Tripillian culture and the early nomads of Ukraine would be the Scythian kingdom. The Scythians ruled from around 700 B.C. to 200 B.C. That was before the Greeks and Romans really started to take over. Both had a huge time occupying the Crimean Peninsula and, of course, the Black Sea so that they could get to parts of Greece, where Anatolia was, like get through that whole area from the Black Sea up to there, then up through Russia and up through what becomes Russia and to East Asia. All those things like were very important because of that. So once the Romans fell, the, Byzant the Byzantines took over the land, and following that... There's a new group of people that kind of come into the land, and it's for a reason that's separate from the Greeks and the Romans. And that's because the Slavic migration happened, and that was forced by other people groups. So the Slavic migration happens in the 6th century, and they're forced to migrate because huge amounts of people were coming from the east and from the Crimean Peninsula and from all over and pushing into the area of, like, near Germany and the Baltics in that area now. We saw Alans, Huns, Avars, Khazars, and early Bulgarians called Bulgars passing through the area and forcing a lot of migration so that people that were like the Germanic Vikings of sorts had to move their way down into what is now Ukraine and that whole area which eventually is more interaction with the north and the Baltics as well as south of the Black Sea. Now, the next important group of people that come and really influence the land would be on the Dnieper River. There were the Swedish and other Baltic Vikings. So in the north, that's where... Sweden is, and that's where the Vikings are coming from Norway and Denmark and getting very good at navigating parts of Europe because the raids have begun by this point, and it's the 700s, so they're, you know, working their way through Slavic lands, moving against the Germans, doing a lot of different things in the area, and becoming very influential. This eventually leads to a place called Kiev being formed as a huge trading post that was on the Dnieper River on the way to the Black Sea from the north. So the Vikings were able to pass through these areas and influence the land by, you know, visiting so often, raiding the land, having a lot of trade, things that would eventually form into what is the Kievan Rus. Now, there was a time in the 700s 
AD when the Vikings were kicked out by the Slavics in the area. The Slavs forced out all the Vikings from the rivers and all that. But it was by 826 that the Kievan Rus was formed. Now, the name is called that because Kiev was the capital of this trade region and Rus was the name given to the Vikings that came. And there was a lot of desire for the people that lived there in Kiev and wanted to form this trade group and unite into the Kievan Rus. They wanted people to know how to navigate the rivers and fight battles to be their actual leaders. They wanted those to be the people that, you know, help them get through all their problems and be able to defend them, all that. So the Swedish Vikings are actually brought back as leaders in this form of the Kievan Rus in 826. Then comes the time which is considered pretty much the golden age or glory days of of the Kievan Rus, and that happens under King Vladimir the Great. Now, in late 1988, not only had he expanded the lands far and like tied up a lot of connection between the different states that made up the Kievan Rus, but he started sending his troops out to different parts of the world to come back with a religion so that the people of the Kievan Rus could be united under one religion because throughout history, even to this point in 988 AD, it was clear that religion was a very uniting force. There had been many religious wars fought. People had fought, you know, the, a million things have happened for religious purposes. So he saw that if there was one religion that they could all agree on and be united under, it would bring them even closer together. And after hearing different things, a lot of stereotypes and things that we would, like we wouldn't say today about Muslims and the Jewish, and Vladimir ends up going the opposite direction of any of those and ends up choosing Eastern Orthodox Christianity for his people. And this would also help them get into good relations with the, Byz the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople. Now, the son of Vladimir the Great is Yaroslav the Wise, and he expanded the Kievan Rus very far, but that wasn't even his biggest achievement. The bigger thing would be the Pravada of Yaroslav, which was the name given to the laws that he first wrote. It was the first laws that applied fully to the Kievan Rus, and not only did it describe things they had to, you know, legally abide by, but it was also principles they would live by and kind of like the, I always use the term mindset, but like mindset of sorts and kind of way these people live and the principles they put forth. Things like that were all put out in the Pravada of Yaroslav and they hadn't been put out before that. A lot of economic decline actually hit Kiev because they started facing a lot of challenge from different people groups and different leaders. And one of them would be the Cumans, who would take over Crimean, the Crimean Peninsula and block them off from the Black Sea. So the Kievan Rus no longer had easy access to the Black Sea. They had an enemy blocking them there. And if it was any like traders trying to get by, they would face a heavier tax to trade through the Black Sea if they were even let in at all. And on top of that, the city-states within the Kievan Rus started to really battle out. And... They were clashing heads very violently, which, of course, weakened them on an international front because now the Kievan Rus wasn't this big united thing. It was a conglomeration of like smaller fighting parts that now couldn't come together and unite against a bigger incoming threat. A lot of these conflicts actually came because of succession crises where within the Kievan Rus there'd be different families married and you know different amounts of kids, kids born firstborn son of one family would be, you know, a different different than the firstborn son of another family, but they would be married, so issues would come of, of who was supposed to rule a specific throne. Things like that caused a lot of these battles, and while these battles were going on, there was also the issue with the Byzantine Empire, because it actually fell because of the Fourth Crusade, which meant that the wealthiest ally of the Kievan Rus could no longer actually help them, and 
struggles for power and control of this land actually saw a lot of just more fighting, foreign power starting to back smaller groups, and by 1212 AD, it was just all over the place. There was complete, like, not anarchy, but just chaos between the groups. There was no real united Kievan Rus, which left them very open for the invasion of the Mongols. Now, the Mongol raids would start around 1237, and they were just an easy target. As I said before, they weren't united. They weren't facing the same direction to fight. They were facing each other, clashing heads, and they had no united front at all. So when the Mongols came with over 30,000 mounted archers and their giant horde, they crushed the Kievan Rus and very quickly made them one of their, one of their uh, tributaries. Mongol rule was called the Mongol Tartar Yoke, and this is where the tributary happens. There's a huge amount of trade that passes through the area, and on top of that, money is just being yanked from the hands of the Kievan Rus and given to the Mongols as tribute, and they're just seen as like a cash cow and, you know, literally like a cash mule just forever for them while under Mongol rule. And another thing that came from that was the fact that the region northeast of Kiev was actually Muscovy, which is where Moscow comes from. And they began to really separate their ideals from that of Kiev. And this is where Moscow becomes a city and starts to really gain power. And this split between Moscow and Kiev began to get bigger and bigger and grow wider, especially as the Mongol collapse fell, because three different groups would really emerge out of this collapse to fill the power vacuum that was left by the now fallen Mongols. Now, of course, the first two would be Moscow, which is now becoming its own power. It's really starting to see itself as this like third Roman Empire, Empire of sorts, the defenders of the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're very, very different than the western and northwestern areas of Kiev. But Kiev wasn't actually the big power there. It was actually Lithuania. Of course, in modern view, Lithuania being a huge power in Europe doesn't sound like it makes sense at all. But at the time, Lithuania was huge. Lithuania and its allies, the biggest one being Poland and the different agreements they had together, touched all the way from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea the way Russia does today. So they were controlling power in the West very heavily and the united front of Poland and Lithuania sought to like seal up that power vacuum that was left by the Mongols, but in their western area, which was the west and southwest of, of Moscow. And with that, they would form Ruthenia, which is the name of like the leftover area of the Rus that was no longer in Mongol control. Ruthenia itself was one of the biggest changes from Kievan Rus to like moving towards modern Ukraine. The reason this is so big and is such a difference for them is because of the difference that the eastern part of what was a Kievan Rus, which is Moscow, Moscow and Muscovy, as I said, and Kiev, which is now Ruthenia, their different perspectives they get is just like very big towards where we get to today, where they like have such separate ideals and separate feelings about a lot of things. Some of the bigger ones with this was the fact that a lot of Western philosophy from France, Italy, Britain, all that was coming into the Western area of Lithuania and Poland, which was Ruthenia. And they were starting to change their religion too, leaning much more towards Greek Catholicism than the Eastern Orthodox Church. Moscow, on the other hand, was much more isolated from the rest of the world. They 
very much internalized their own things. They got a lot of their leadership style from the Mongols, which were very authoritarian. And as I said before, they saw themselves as the third, Ro the third Rome, defenders of the Eastern Church, and they wouldn't give this up. And this would drive a wedge between Ukraine, early Ukrainians and Russia forever. Now, I said there was three powers that filled this vacuum, and the third one is actually the Crimean Khanate. That's um, the area of, obviously, Crimea, the peninsula that's in the Black Sea, as well as a little bit east of it. That land was heavily influenced by Mongols and was now being took, taken over by the Cumans, which replaced the Mongols and like very much had a lot of influence from them, ruled in a very similar style. But they hailed their power to the Ottoman Sultanate as like the actual ruler of the land, so... This was a very different perspective than both Moscow and Ruthenia. And during this time is when probably the most important part of the formation of like Ukrainian mindset and Ukrainian independence and all of that comes to fruition is with serfdom and what serfdom creates near the Crimean Khanate. Now, serfdom, of course, is a form of forced labor, very similar to... Slavery, of course, there was differences, but it made the peasants, the peasant class, very prone to being forced to work, long hours, facing a lot of abuses. This forces a lot of people to escape the West and Northeast because of what was happening, how serfdom was starting to take over the lands, how it was being used in, in Northern Russia. All of these things were contributing to people wanting to migrate, and people of all sorts Muslims, Ruthenians, Eastern Slavs, Jewish, all sorts of people were coming together into this new frontier in a very nomadic style to the west of the Crimean Khanate in this giant frontier that not that wasn't like fully controlled by any specific power because it didn't have a lot of value and it didn't have cities built, it didn't have a lot of resources, but it was ripe for a group of people to form into something new and that something new would be the Cossacks. And this is what I mean when I say that this is what is, in my eyes, the most important part of Ukrainians finding who they are and they're where their basis of who they are comes from. And it's with the Cossacks. Now, the term Cossack comes from a Turkish word which translates to free man or a free man. So Cossacks would be many free men. Think about that when we get to the independence. Now, they form into a huge group of people, many different... Obviously, as I said, styles of living, Muslims, Ruthenians, all of that. And they come together, form a horde of sorts, and start to have a nomadic lifestyle. They move with the, they move as different crops grow. They move with livestock. They're a big conglomeration of people. And they're very much more proud of the wild lifestyle and being out in nature and harvesting and fighting and training their skills instead of having a you know a stagnant city lifestyle which would see them oppressed by oppressed by some power because of the fact that they're peasants and they're they were poor people this is why they're so prone to go out and live the way they want to live and they were very proud people once they got to the point where there was a lot of them and they all you know a lot of them looked different they felt different about their history, but they all come together into this land and they are starting to move together and live together and a sense of pride begins to build within these people and they understand what they're good at. They start doing mercenary work, especially for the Polish Lithuanians at the time, but they didn't like the idea of not being treated right. They didn't like the idea of not being recognized as a group. They didn't like the idea of being treated differently than anyone else. So they would not stand up 
stand for that. They would actually stand up to it. Early self-determination is built within the Cossacks. Their name literally means a free man. They're very sought on the idea of independence, and they want this idea of their own land to be theirs, to be fully ruled by them, to be ruled by Cossack people, Cossack leaders, elected by them, chosen, people that have proven themselves, not people that Russia sends, not people that were sent by Polish-Lithuania, not in agreement with the Crimeans, none of that. They wanted purely their own independence, they wanted their own thing, and this is like the earliest idea of Ukrainian mindset is this freedom, this independence from anyone except for themselves, their own blood, their own rulers, things like that. The land they live on is called the Zaporizhian Siege, and it was called this because the lower part of the Dnieper River is called Zaporizhia, and the Siege is like a name that was an, uh, an army camp that was there. It was The Siege was an army camp formed by the Cossacks, and it was on this lower part of the Dnieper River. Things start to come to fruition during the Second Northern War, where powers like Russia, Sweden, and Polish-Lithuania got into like different battles over the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. And of course, Crimea was involved too, because anything that happened with the Black Sea had to go through them, especially with powers from the north. So a lot of them, a lot of these powers would hire the Cossacks to fight hugely for their rights. A lot of these powers would actually use the Cossacks to fight their battles for them or alongside their army just to bolster the defense. The Polish used them a lot in Crimea, and this is another thing that contributes to their pride because these people see, you know, they're great at fighting, they're bringing a lot of wealth and help and expansion to bigger powers, but not a lot of it is coming back to them. It's, you know, it's the, always the gap between the person at the top of, of like, a pyramid, uh, like a work pyramid, and the workers who they may put in the most hours, they put in the most hard labor, but they get the least reward. This is what was happening with the Cossacks as they fought these wars for people. They were being paid, but not as much as these kings that were inheriting great wealth. And after the Second Northern War, a lot of movement for independence starts to go on. So the Polish king starts ignoring the calls for independence and, you know, the calls to be recognized of the Cossacks. And as different battles were breaking out, Russia and Sweden coming together to fight against different parts of Poland, the Cossacks actually started to insert their own independence, and the person who would push for this most would be Hetman Bodan Kimonitsky. Kimonitsky was a nobleman who was escaping misjudgment by the Polish government, and he fled to the siege, which was the war camp, and was elected Hetmanate very, very quickly. As Hetmanate, which is like leader of sorts, Kimonitsky did a lot for the Cossacks, and he was very much seen as a liberator for the Cossack people. So, while the wars were going on between Poland and these, the Northern Wars, as well as wars in the South against the Ottomans, the Cossacks were used all the time by Poland, but when it got to the point where Poland wasn't recognizing their independence or doing anything to help them with their problems, Kemelnitsky didn't like this and began to start winning battles against Poland to stand up against their leadership. And... And across all the areas that were being inherited by the Cossacks and being ruled by the Cossacks that they were passing through or really putting down settlements on, huge resentment against oppressors started to come. And this was mostly against major like leading oppressors like Polish and Russian leaders, but a people group that got caught up in the like crossfire of this were actually the Jewish community. Now, this was because a lot of the Jewish in the lands that were the Zaporizhian siege had a lot of money or they had a lot of power or they would own a farm or they'd own a plantation. They'd have something where they could make a lot of money and it would take other people's work. 
this caught them in the crossfire of being killed and attacked and re like revolted against by the Cossacks. And of course, when one like like if it's if you're just targeting like rich Jewish landowners, that's one group. But anytime something like that happens, there's going to be some group of people within like the attackers that'll see all Jewish people as a problem. Like if you're attacking like Russian oligarchs, there's a good chance that people that are doing the attacking are also just going to hit Russian people in the crossfire because they're like, they're not going to see the difference or not that it's okay in the first part, but they're not going to see the difference between, you know, one part and the other. So that is one of the bad things that happened to Kalinitsky uprising, but it just has to be acknowledged with the fact that the Cossacks were fighting hard for their independence from greater powers that were oppressing them. There was actually a time where the Cossacks and people in the Crimean Peninsula actually started to work together and push into Poland's land, and they got all the way to Zamosk, but Kalinitsky didn't believe in this idea of like conquering, and he didn't want to bite off more than he could chew, so he just did that to prove a point, to say, look, Poland, we have the power. You as Polish-Lithuania need to like acknowledge us, accept that we're equal to you, we're equal workers, we're equal fighters, and we're an equal country of sorts. And you need to stop like encroaching on our land, you need to stop trying to tax us weird, you need to stop underpaying us for our work. Stop it. We have the power to attack you, but we're not going to do it because we're not trying to make an enemy. He would return to the Zaporizhian siege and would be seen as a liberator, seen as a hero, and he's still celebrated by Ukrainians to this day. After these battles with Poland and a lot of back and forth, we would see the formation of the Cossack Hetmanate. Now, we saw, as I said earlier, he was elected Hetmanate, but it was of a much more ununited area. It was much harder for Kalinitsky to draw you know, power into people and draw power into his government. But now the Cossacks had power. They had a united power where they all agreed on what they wanted, which was to form this independent Cossack state. And that's what we get with the Cossack Hetmanate. Under his rule, there was a lot of changes to the government. They started interacting in foreign affairs, and they had a very almost modern style of governing. It was very democratic. There was a general assembly, and the name Ukraine actually starts to like fizzle in right now from the Ottoman Empire because they called this area Ukraina Memleketi. And as you could hear with Ukraine, that's obviously, you know, eventually breaks down to Ukraine, which is very important for the time. So the Hetmanate had a great effect on the relationship with Russia. And as we see here, Cossacks believe one thing. They want independence. They have become this united group. They want to keep their independence. They don't want to be ruled by anyone else. And they don't want another power presiding over them. However, this wouldn't work for long. Of course, the Cossacks wanted their independence. They wanted to fight for it. They wanted to do what they could to keep it. But they started to face big economic issues. They were being attacked by other powers. And it got to a point where they needed to reach out to someone that was more powerful than they were in order to help them. And the person they were most easily able to reach out to were the people of Russia and the state of Russia that had very similar history and bloodline to them. So they reached out to Russia for help, and the Cossacks aligned themselves with Moscow. Now, this alignment is very, very huge in history. It's very debated. It's gone back and forth on. Ukrainian historians see it one way. Russian historians see it another. There was an alignment of sorts, an agreement, a treaty was signed that put these two countries in affiliation, the Cossack Hetmanate and Russia. 
Ukrainian historians will argue for the idea that it was an agreement and that it was like working together. It was a level of autonomy for the Cossacks above that of like a principality. And it was purely they worked together. They, you know, handle problems together. They put out policies that would help each other. That's what Ukrainian historians claim. Russian Ukrainian, or sorry, Russian historians would claim that this was made for the sake of uniting Ukraine into Russia, encapsulating it into the Russian Empire. And that is very highly debated to this day that when this agreement came out, what it actually meant. And it still goes on today, like especially with what's going on. There's like a push and pull of what people believe. So after this is signed, there becomes a big split in Ukraine. Right bank Ukraine stays loyal to the Polish Commonwealth. They had always been, you know, a little more isolated from you know, the Western ideas and they're dealing much more with Poland. They did a lot of fighting on their wars. They worked with them a whole lot. And in the Hetmanate, they support this side. Now, the left bank was much more supportive of Russia and they actually launched an attack onto Poland with Russia, which starts a time known in Poland as the Deluge and in Ukraine known as the Ruin. The Ruin is a series of wars and war atrocities that saw the Polish-Russo wars and a split up of the Cossack Hetmanate. Now, there was a lot of fighting that went on. There was war atrocities across both sides, Polish, Poland, Russia, and in the Cossack Hetmanate. Uh, there was infighting within the Hetmanate. Of course, there was because the right supported one side, the left supported another. And things went back and forth for a long time. And it was eventually ended by the by the Treaty of Perpetual Peace, which was signed in 1686. And it split the control of the Cossack Hetmanate between Poland and Russia, which now eliminates Cossack hegemony and like ability to be free, east and west, even though they had their issues. Now they're fully separated and controlled by foreign powers. Following this, there's the Great Northern War, which saw Russia seeking to expand its influence over major ports in the sea, such as the Baltic Sea. And the Cossacks in this are able to, you know, talk back and forth with the left, with the east side of the Cossacks and the right and the west side of the Cossacks, which had different beliefs before under Russia and now under Poland. They work together and eventually betray Russia. They end up supporting Sweden in the Great Northern War, but Sweden ends up coming down to the area like where the Cossacks are with Poland and with Russia, and big fights break out, and it ends up with a loss for the Cossacks and the Swedish, and a huge war ends here, and a huge amount of early distrust is established here between Russia and Ukraine. After the war ends, of course, a lot of control was just pushed across Russia. Russia began to grab all the Cossack hetmanate. They began to grab areas in the north. And after more battling, they actually defeat Poland and encapsulate the whole area of Poland, which eliminates the existence of Poland for over 100 years before it's like re-signed again after a time period in the 1900s. Russia had a lot of control over the area in general, but they still didn't have what they wanted most which was access to the Black Sea and Constantinople because of the Crimean Khanate. But one Russo-Turkish war later, there's battles that go back and forth. Around 1783, Russia very easily annexes Crimea after crushing Turkey, and down it goes. Now that Russia has had time to establish great control from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea, 
in the northwest to Poland and the southwest into the Cossack Hetmanate, they have the ability to do what they want now. And under Catherine the Great, who of course in Russia is remembered for her great expansion of territory, all the art she brought to the land, all the great things she did for the country's history, to the Ruthenians and to the Cossacks, it's not quite the same glory it's looked at because Catherine the Great is very much the embodiment of Russification of the land, which saw Ruthenian language, which is the basis for eventual Ukrainian, it's completely banned, it's outlawed to be spoken, it's outlawed to be taught, so you can only say it in your house, like with people around you, you can't say it in public, you should learn Russian. And Jew, the Jewish community faced a lot of things under Catherine the Great and this Russification process, which is where they were forced into a community called the Pale, and their education and culture was like very much suppressed, and they were fed a lot of Russian propaganda. And this is one of the earlier cases of you know Jewish culture being attacked and hidden from the world for an ulterior motive. Now this Russification process and Russia controlling would go on until Russia starts to hit its time of, you know, kind of, sputting and starting to spiral and slow down. So when it comes to the 1800s, a lot of Russia's power began to decline. Now, they weren't the global power that they wanted to be. They had influence over the land, but they didn't have the same power as the West, as America's being gain, especially not as much as Great Britain and France had. They weren't there yet, but they were sure trying. And as they started to go into different battles, they lose a lot of things and they lose a lot of influence. They got into wars in Crimea and actually lost this war to Crimea, and the land is gone, no longer annexed by them. And they also get a huge upset, upset loss for Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, where Japan actually stomps them out and beats them. And Russia is like now humiliated, which leads to a lot of other things in Russia internally that will go outside and affect the Ukraine. The issues with losing wars and with all the things that happened lead to the Russian Civil War, where I'm not going to get into what that conflict is, but, you know, there's the Bolsheviks, there's the anti-Bolsheviks, there's a lot of fighting, the Tsar is executed, things go all over the place, and there's a huge issues. Now, these issues start to spill out into the Ukraine, into Poland, into other areas. Now, the anti-Bolshevik White Army allied with the Ukrainian nationalists, because this war for Russian, the Russian Civil War is also known as the Ukrainian War for Independence, because... As Russia started to falter and like kind of crumble internally, the Cossacks never lost their like desire to be free. And now united into this area, which is starting to become more known as Ukraine, these Cossacks, which I'm now going to refer to as Ukrainians, want that independence again. They want that freedom they once had. They want the freedom they were told about by their grandfathers. And it's been in their blood always to have that independence. Now they're ready to get it back. So... They allied with the anti-Bolshevik White Army, and there was also help from the Polish Republic, and now fighting would happen within Ukraine, so the Ukrainians would ally with the anti-Bolshevik White Army, as well as with the Polish Republic, and a lot of fighting would break out, especially as the Black Army and the Red Army began to come into the land, and the Russian Civil War conflict is now like a semi-international affair, and fighting breaks out until what is the end of both World War One and the end of the Russian Civil War is there's negotiations made for peace with Germany and there's negotiations made for peace with Poland and eventually different parts of the land of Ukraine are like given away, are cut off and given to Poland and other powers. 
And of course, at the same time, from as I said with 1918, which is 1914 to 1919 range, was World War One, and during this, the Russian Empire fell apart, and we start to see the formation of the USSR. And of course, throughout this whole time, Ukraine is fighting for independence. They're doing what they can, and they try to, after their war for independence, start to sign, start to sign on different things that are like forming groups which can be internationally recognized, but eventually end up in the USSR, but for a time there was the Ukrainian People's Republic, which was internationally recognized as an independent state, and then there was the Western People's Republic, and they both had this similar idea of, you know, United People's Independence, so in 1919 they signed a treaty to unite the two, but it doesn't last that long, because right after World War One, there's the Polish-Ukrainian War, where issues between land that was once Poland's and land that was the Ukrainians now wanted. They went back and forth over it, fights broke out, and it ended up being a stalemate, just a lot of lives lost for a weird negotiation that didn't win either of them much. The land is pretty much split down the middle, and the Soviets end up just taking over anyways. And fully now, the Ukrainians are incorporated into the now much bigger USSR after World War One. Ukraine is very rich with resources, and it had a huge time of industrial industrialization under Stalin and this is why when World War II started to roll forward and come much more on the horizon and issues started to break out between Hitler and Stalin like they both wanted to batten down and have their lands so Hitler was interested in it and Stalin was going to make very sure that Hitler didn't get it and one of the Stalin's major plans once he came into power was the whole was the time called the Holodomor which is one of the worst human atrocities in history because of all the lives it costs, especially it being the USSR's own people that are killed by this. Now, what the Holodomor was, it was the name given to the result of the like food lines and like trade efforts by Stalin, which were to make sure that all grain and most like quotas are imposed on the people of Ukraine and those areas. Where any farmers produce any food, it is to go to, like the USSR, to go. To, it's very communist style. It's like it all goes to the government. The government will redistribute it back out, like as your. This is your contribution to our government and to yourself. So we'll give you some food after. But the quotas were usually very unrealistic. They were very hard to meet, and if they were met, all the food that was produced would be taken, and many people would be left to starve. And this got so bad that between three and twelve million Ukrainians were starved to death because of Stalin's plan. That is what the Holodomor is. Now, in Crimea, a lot of the population was starting to be deported to Asia under Stalin because of any level of resistance. It's when it's it's the Stalin thing. He starts to deport people off into the Gulag and off into Siberia and all of that. And Ukraine also saw a huge effect from the Holocaust in general. In the Soviet Union, 2 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust and that was all in the Ukraine. All those two million were killed in the Ukraine. Like other areas of the USSR didn't see that as much outside of Poland. It was Ukraine was a very big one. And the community is pretty much wiped out across the board and their history is just tarnished out of Ukraine. And there was even a very famous massacre called the Babinyar Massacre, which was literally in two days. There was 33,000 Jews killed because of the Holocaust. And even beyond the starvation and the Jewish community that was killed heavily, 
a lot of the fighting on the Eastern Front happened in Ukraine, so about 40% of the USSR's total losses in World War II were Ukrainian people. So this whole time of World War II is just entirely a suffering for the, for the peasants and the poor people of Ukraine, for the Jewish of Ukraine, and for people that were just caught up in crossfire. Across the board, this is just a horrific time where horrible people have made horrible choices to affect the Ukraine. After World War II, the USSR would finally start to push its borders and would really start to partition with Germany and Poland, and eventually Ukraine is pushed to its modern size after that because of the USSR. And they're fully reunited by this point. Both sides are now just Ukraine, its own country, under USSR, of course, under very strict restrictions under Stalin, but that would end soon once he passes away. So after he passes away... We get into a different part of the post-war period where now Nikita Khrushchev is in power after Stalin has died, and things just look very different. Now, Nikita Khrushchev gained power and had a completely different idea with what to do with Ukraine than Stalin did. Stalin was very oppressive. He didn't want them getting ideas of independence. He didn't want them doing anything except listening to him and being under his heel. Khrushchev had a different idea. He wanted a good relationship between the elected government of Ukraine and Russia. And one of the big things he even does is actually in 1954, he signs Crimea to the Ukraine. Ukraine is now given away from the USSR to Ukraine, which is huge. Time goes on from this point. Different leaders are elected. One of the leaders of eventually the USSR is born in Ukraine, so relations stay good for a while. But We'll see, as we've, we see right now, as we saw throughout the history, the Naper River still acts as a big like dividing point for the country. Now, the West speaks mostly Ukrainian and aligns itself much more with the Cossack history, which is very separate from the Russian history. But when you go east of the Naper River, it is much more likely that people are going to speak Russian and identify with Russian ideas over Ukraine. That's because the eastern half was much more historically aligned with Russia, and they were either suppressed by the empire or faced harder russification and didn't get to see the same culture and change that the West saw. So the czars and the USSR that have been in control of that region for a time very much restricted their ability to be influenced and learn new things the way that the West was. So with that is where we see a lot of different... Changes start to come, and beliefs by Ukrainians go different ways, and we're working now towards the very, very modern period of Ukraine. Now, we're going to jump to 1990 now, which is when a human chain is formed. Over 300,000 Ukrainians form a human chain from Lviv to Kiev to symbolize the unity of eastern and western Ukraine, which happened right around World War One. As I said before, the thing that was signed in 1919 that united the People's Republic and the Western people's republic that is like this human chain symbolizes that as a way to stand up for independence from russia now once the soviet union fell in 1991 and the first election of ukrainian leaders came without being under the ussr fully now about 90 percent of people agreed we want to be independent from russia and the ussr and we want to stay out in the failing now ussr so ukraine wanted to join the eu they wanted a more democratic world. They wanted all these things, and from this election comes their official independence. One of the major choices that affects the present day and changed the situation hugely is that they give up their nuclear weapons. Because of their connection with the USSR, 
and they're very, you know, resort, they're them being a very resource filled country. Ukraine, when they were independent in 1991, were the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. They had more nukes than China, the UK, and France combined. And in negotiations as the USSR fell, the US, Russia, and Ukraine came to an agreement where in 1994, Ukraine would just give up its weapons. They would give up their nukes, they would have them disassembled, they would have them taken away. They would do this fully in peace and do it with hopes of not being a nuclear power that is threatened or attacked. They simply want peace. Now, that connects to now because now they're being invaded and they now have no nukes to have the same powerful threat that Russia and other powers have. When we get to the early 2000s, elections at this point had been going well, but we see things go south here. A pro-Russian candidate named Viktor Yanukovych actually gets the victory in the 2004-2005 election. But it is seen by the international community that this was a very much not clean election. It wasn't as open as other elections were. It wasn't to the standard that the international community likes public elections to be held to. So this starts the Orange Revolution, which is led by another man named Victor, but this is Victor Yashchenko, because he was the other candidate, which was much more Western-leaning, and his political party color was orange, so that's why it's called the Orange Revolution. People began to take the streets, call for a reversal of the election, call for the election to run again, something like that, so that true democracy could be held in Ukraine. Now, once the second election came, because that was the result of the Orange Revolution, Viktor Yashchenko actually did win the election, but he started to appear more and more with a disfigured face, and they started to understand that this was the result of poisoning against the candidate that was Western-leaning as opposed to the Russian-leaning candidate. Then, as time goes on, we see something similar start to grow and a trend starts to happen. A huge amount of suicides and poisonings start to happen to government officials who are anti-Russian or Western-leaning. And this also is at the same time that Vladimir Putin comes to the presidency. Now, of course, these events couldn't possibly be related, but it's just something to think about is that they were both happening at the same time. And in 2006, there was a huge energy crisis because Russia cut off its energy to Ukraine because of the fact that they weren't being Russian-leading. They were electing a lot of people that were Western-leading, and many people faced starvation and other health issues because of this. And then in 2010, there's another election. This time, Viktor Yanukovych wins in an election that is seen as clean and fair by the international community. But people under him were not as clean as he was, at least in this election. His regime was very dirty. They had a lot of controversy. One of the major women in the regime was arrested. And things go back and forth. It's a lot of issues, but his election still looks a little dirty. His regime looks dirty because first he cheats the first election, and then his, then his like regime is looking kind of odd. It's just not a good look at all. Of course, in Russia, Vladimir Putin is coming into power in 2012. He becomes the president, and he holds this position all the way up until now, and he was a former intelligence officer, former KGB, so he got the selection from Prime Minister from, Prime Minister from 2012 up in 2012. He becomes the president, and this starts to change the history even more and more. Now, in the 2013 election, Yanukovych is up for re-election. He wins it. And this came at a time when other Ukrainian officials were starting to really push for the idea of Ukraine joining NATO. And 
being more involved with the EU, being very Western-leaning country. Yanukovych pulls them out of this NATO. They were supposed to be the NATO signing where Ukraine would sign on to join NATO. Yanukovych pulls them out of this and starts to work towards stronger ties with Russia. The people of Ukraine did not stand for this, and in 2014, the Kiev March began. One of the biggest events of this is that the military and the police ended up opening fire on a lot of the peaceful protesters, killing about 100 people in different areas. And this is when those videos started to air on the internet of Molotov cocktails being thrown because now the people felt like they were being attacked, so they were going to fight back. And as you've seen throughout their entire history, be it Ruthenia, be it the Rus, Ruthenians, Cossacks, or Ukrainians, they will fight for what they believe in, and especially if they're being oppressed or being limited in some way, and that's what was happening here. This government was not doing what it like, was expected to do. They were expected to join NATO and be Western-leaning, and then they were going the opposite way. These fights started to break out, and Yanukovych is actually forced out of office. He's like formally removed, and he's forced to flee into Russia, and... The Crimean people were starting to look forward and get ready for a new election, but then Putin makes a major move. Putin actually annexes Crimea in 2014. Putin illegally and against international law marches troops into Crimea and annexes the land for the sake of defending ethnic Russians, and he claims that the land is ancient Russian soil, he claims that Ukrainian and Russians are one people, that there shouldn't even be two separate countries, that being incorporated into one greater Russia. As this is going on, there's another set of people that are Russian-backed separatists that attack two different regions. And these regions are Donetsk and Luhansk, which are both on the eastern border of Ukraine, very, very close to Russia. One of them, Luhansk, is actually bordering Russia almost entirely. And they start to be... Give these Russian separatist groups the next land, and they're starting to be given major weapons and new complicated like military artillery to be used in their fighting and defending the land. And one of the things that happens here is they use one of those large missile launching trucks to actually shoot down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. It was a huge thing on the news, and it was seen as very, it was very mysterious, and no one claimed that they did it. ISIS was the ones that ended up claiming they did it, even though they didn't. They weren't all the ones who did it. But eventually, you know, we're able to draw the lines between the scenario and what happened, and we could see that it was these Russian separatists that shot them down. There was a truck driving away from the area with one with one missile missing from like its slot. So it makes sense that it was them. The reason is a little more unknown, but these people do shoot down this airline, maybe thinking it was an enemy. Whatever it is, it happens. Now internationally, of course, these things are not okay. They, so now that this happened, the international community needs to get involved. And remember how earlier I said that Ukraine gave up its nukes and all that? Well, the biggest part of that agreement was they would give up their nukes under one condition, is that the Western allies give them full protection and help support their territorial integrity. That geographically, they had to be protected if they were going to give up their nukes. Now... Putin has now annexed Crimea and supported people that annexed two other territories, Donetsk and Donetsk, in the eastern regions. And so far, there's not been any help. There's not been any threats. There's just been what we see is sanctions placed on Russia and trade is hurt and their economy is hurt pretty bad. But it's not enough to stop Putin. And that whole thing with, okay, we're going to make sure that you are taken care of. We're going to make sure that you guys are defended. Your land is, you're like, 
geographical integrity is not attacked, that doesn't isn't truth. The U.S. didn't do it. The U.S. and the Western allies didn't help them. They didn't provide troops. They didn't threaten to fight Russia. They didn't tell Russia they need to stop. They just said, this is really bad. We condemn this. We'll be sending sanctions. And Putin did what he did the way he always wants to, which was continue to do what he wanted. He continued to take Ukraine. He continued to attack. He continued to support the separatists. And that's where we start to move more and more towards what we're seeing in the last few weeks. Putin makes a request, and it's one that NATO stops expanding in general, and beyond that, move its borders back to the place it was in the 1970s, which was the early Iron Curtain, where nowhere, nowhere in like greater Europe, west, east of Italy, is included in NATO. Only people that could remain would be Greece and Turkey, that were more eastern, and everyone in the far west, so that there's a big buffer zone between Russia and the Western countries of NATO. Of course, the international community didn't support this idea at all. They didn't even think to agree to this. And very quickly, Russia began to mobilize and station troops. It starts to come up on satellite images that there is hundreds of thousands of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And very quickly, it gets escalated more and more as in Donetsk and in Luhansk, I'm sorry, I'm very trying very hard on the pronunciation here. The Russian troops were moved into those two Russian separatist-backed things, so now it's Russia officially is fully in there. And these two regions are now occupied for peacekeeping. Within days of this, we see the start of the invasion that happened on February 24th, 2022. Putin starts to give a speech talking about a special military operation and as soon as a speech comes to a close there's missiles being fired in the ukraine and troops starting to be sent in as well as tanks and planes flying over the country is ready to fully invade ukraine the ukrainian president volodymyr Zelensky, says proudly that ukrainians will not turn their backs and run from these russian invaders he asks the international community not for an escape for himself or his cabinet but for ammunition and for as much help as they could provide the Ukrainian president, the people, and even celebrities have planted their heels and faced east against Russia, not ready to back down to a fight. Ukrainians have not ever bowed to a greater power, and they shall not bow to Russia today. I wanted to wrap that up on the truth, which is that Putin is making a choice that his people, the people of his large country don't support, the ones that people in Ukraine don't support, one that only... A few people who aren't as educated and aren't as knowing about what's going on and how seemingly just don't understand how the world works, these are the people making this choice to invade. And as you heard with this history, we have said it over and over. Yes, there was a time when the Russian Empire encapsulated all of Ukraine. And yes, the USSR helped expand Ukraine to its modern state. But there has always been the sense for independence since as early as the end of the Kievan Rus, especially with the Cossacks, and in every period of time since, there's always been a fight for Ukrainian independence. And never once have these people wanted to settle for being controlled by someone else, being run by a bigger country, having to live a certain way. And throughout history, there has been the Russification of the land, different annexations, as well as more and more incursions by every country that has ever interacted with them, from Poland to Russia. So... It is hard to understand that it can be justifiable for now with each other. Europe hasn't been at war 
with each other in many, many decades because of the fact that we spent all the time after World War II negotiating, figuring out alliances, figuring out how to make things work so that we're not pointing guns at each other. We're just making conversation, we're having debates, we're having negotiations. Putin and his regime and his choices are killing innocent men, women, and children on both sides because these Russian troops shouldn't be dying for this cause. The Ukrainians, especially the innocents, the civilians, should not have to be dying for this cause, should have to be dying for the sake that Russian leaders want land back that never officially, that never belonged to them fully. Yes, there was times when they've been encapsulated and there's been negotiations, but this is a people group that has formed into a country. Their borders were drawn, their borders were set, and nowhere else in the world outside of with Russia are, I should say Europe, nowhere else in Europe and countries that have been so aligned with alliances and been so involved in the world wars are there's such free incursions without reper- re- repercussions and of course i understand russia is a nuclear armed power most of the powers in the western europe are nuclear armed and it's very dangerous but the ukrainians were quick to give up their weaponry in order to preserve peace and to maintain their geographic integrity and now we're here today where the best that any country outside of the Ukraine is doing to help the Ukraine is, you know, sending some weapons and sanctions. And then there's even countries like Germany that aren't even doing that. They're sending helmets and pillows because they don't really want to touch weapons. They don't want to get involved in it again because of their history. And I understand everyone's trying and nobody wants to be involved with this war. I understand that the U.S. should not be putting boots on the ground. The U.S. should not be making this a bigger conflict, should not be bringing more countries into it. But there are... Thousands of people dying on both sides. Russian troops, Russian people that may be accused of being on the wrong side by ignorant people, Ukrainians that are killed every day in the crossfire, Ukrainian soldiers that are being killed. These are the things that are ridiculous. This is the 21st century, and we're in the second decade of it, where every other country in Europe, in the across the Atlantic, in North America, we're all working together to find peace. We want open trade agreements. We want things to be okay. And now we're in a place where there's so much tension between Russia and the rest of the world that we're seeing people die over it. And I understand that there shouldn't be this great alliance against Russia because that alliance was not against Russia. It was against the USSR and communism and the starvation and pain that the USSR brought. And that same agreement is still in place and expanding today. So I understand that as a Russian leader, you would not like the idea of these people being so close to you. But NATO has not is not an aggressor. NATO has not started wars. NATO has never used any of their conflict clauses. They've only ever had to defend against the USSR and against leaders like Putin. So I I can't stand this war. I can't stand the invasion. I can't stand this idea. And Those are my two cents, is I think the best thing that we can do now is send all the planes and boats we can to help Ukrainians get out, stay out of the conflict itself, don't engage with Russia, don't give them a reason to shoot at us, and don't shoot at them. Just get these innocent people out out of their home for now into other countries in Europe and have them be protected, have them be safe so that we don't have to deal with more deaths than are already been caused. So I'm going to wrap it up on a good note and do what I always do, which is give the mindset. And with the Cossacks and the Ukrainians and Ruthenians, it's very obvious. It's 
fight for what you believe. It's be proud. It's, you know, understand who you are. It's do that because these people historically have been very, very, very proud. And despite the oppression they faced and the issues they faced and the large countries, Polish, Lithuania, Sweden, Russia, the USSR, this stage of Russia, they have always continued to fight hard and do what they can to get through anything that's come. So as they do this, I would say to look at that and bring it within yourself. People are going to try and influence you. People are going to try and take things from you. People are going to try many, many things on you throughout your life. And if you can stay true to yourself, true to your beliefs, and true to what you see, then that's going to be the best path possible. So I'm going to leave it at that and say simply that this is a rough conflict. This is a very hard one. This is hard to watch. It's hard to see these men, women, children fighting and killed and displaced. But... At this stage, it's it's just very hard. So I say do whatever you can. If you know anyone that's directly involved, help them as much as you can. If you have the money to donate to proper causes that you do research on and can prove that they're actually helping the clause and not just taking money from you, donate money, send what you can. If you're close to the conflict, I've seen the videos of Polish mothers leaving carriages out. Things like this show how strong the human community is and how strong we can be when we're all together. So just do what you can for yourself and do what you can to help those involved. And if you're not doing either of those, just do your best to understand the situation because being educated on big things like this is very important. So I'm going to leave it at that and just say thank you all for watching. I know it's a harder subject these days. This is a much more like heavy-hearted episode than I've done before, but... It, it had to be done because right now it's not an easy situation and it's hard. So thank you so much for watching. My name is Alex Marks. This is Young History and that was the history of Ukraine.